Um, turn your Bibles to Genesis 15 or follow along up here uh, to remind you of where we are or to catch you up if you haven't been with us. We are looking at God's grand story this semester. And uh, so far, we've got a pretty good explanation for why there is such beauty in the world and uh, why we long for something like home because God created the world as a home for us, beautiful, where things worked and uh, purpose and personhood and relationships came together well. And then we also got a good explanation for why everything's broken and frustrating, why our relationships with God and each other, even ourselves and our work, is often frustrated and fractured. And then we've also seen the beginning, the very beginning of God's plan to fix it. And it's an audacious plan, an, an almost ridiculous plan to use an old man and his family to bless the world. That's his plan. An old man named Abram to bring blessing to the whole world. We saw that last week. Now, segue. In RUF, I often say, and others often say, that we want you and your doubts to come. And we want you to bring your doubting cynical friends. There's lots of reasons for that. But one reason, simply put, is uh, whatever you may think from your particular church, or whatever you may think in your cynicism or unbelief, uh, Christianity and, and doubt are not completely antithetical. And in fact, you often have to work through your doubts and bring your doubts to God in order to grow in your faith. And uh, if you read through the Bible, what you often find is many of the key characters of the Bible working through doubt. And that's the case tonight. Abraham, the very linchpin of God's plan, doubts it. Doubts God. Wonders what's happening and what's going on. So uh, let's bring our doubts and let's bring our faith and let's learn with Abraham tonight that God is worth trusting. So Genesis 15, verses 1 to 21. I'll read. Feel free to follow along. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the corpses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a dreadful sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Watch this. When the sun had not yet gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I didn't even practice that. That's the end. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Our great Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would show us great things in it. In particular, show us your greatness. And that uh, trusting you is a reasonable and right thing to do. Uh, we pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to that end. Amen. Um, so, I'm going to be up front with this. had a little crazy afternoon. Talk about it later if you want. But this is the cycle of, this is the sermon of recycled illustrations. So, uh, some of you will know every single illustration when I tell them. So, that's okay. They're great ones. Um, <laughs> So this one starts like this. It was uh, April 24th in 1916. And uh, imagine you're one of 22 men. And you are sitting on an island shore. Only it's not a pleasant beach. It's a hard rock, frozen island. A short stone's throw from Antarctica. Your ship has gotten trapped in ice. And it's being slowly crushed. You've had to abandon ship. And you're now being deserted on Elephant Isle. At least a thousand miles from any hint of civilization. And uh, you're watching your captain, Ernest Shackleton, and a few men leave. They're leaving to go get help. 22 of you on this island. There's no one there. There's nothing there. No food. No shelter. It is sub-zero. You have almost no reason to hope you're going to live. And Shackleton, as he leaves, basically promises you that he will return and charges you to be prepared every single day for his return. Okay, put yourself there. Got it? Here's a question. Are you going to believe that? Are you actually going to believe that this guy is coming back for you? Do you get up every morning and nurse the hope that your rescue is imminent and that he's coming back for you? I mean, you're not going to rescue yourself. There's no getting off of this rock. When you, put your, when you put yourself in that place, perhaps you begin to feel like what Abraham may have felt like in this situation. You've received an extravagant promise that God's going to come and rescue everything, including you. But it's hard to believe. You're pretty much alone in this. And it's been a long time. And, and the plan is audacious, like I said. That God's going to give you, an old man, and your barren wife, the equivalent of a nation of offspring. A great nation will come from you. You don't, have a, you don't have one kid, much less a nation. And then make you a blessing to the whole world. And with every passing day, month, and year, as you get closer to death... That rescue, that plan seems less and less likely. Can you imagine that? Circumstantially speaking, it doesn't look very likely. Waiting and waiting seems less and less likely all the time. And the question is, is God going to be good to His promise? Is God going to keep His promise? And how do you go on believing day after day, year after year, when it seems like God may have forgotten His promise, or He's not good, or He's not coming back, He's not faithful? And here's the question for us. 
You may have your own personal darkness and your own personal waiting over any number of things. I'll make it even more stark than that. If God can't keep this promise, which is at the very beginning of the Bible, it's his whole plan to fix the broken world. If God can't keep that promise, why in the world should I trust him to, to keep any promise? I mean, this is the big promise of how God's going to fix everything. If he doesn't keep that promise, why should I trust him at all? For anything. Why should I be in this room? Why should I come to RUF? Why should I care about the God of the Bible? Well, I want us to come with Abraham and discover what he discovered today. And what he discovered is that God makes and keeps very costly promises. God makes and keeps costly promises. So we can trust him. And uh, our outline is really simple. We're going to talk about God's goodness and his faithfulness. That he is good and he's faithful. Okay? We see his goodness in, in his coming in verse 1. Uh, it's not been an easy life in these two short chapters for Abraham. Since God came and made this promise, Abraham has gone from old to older. And his wife has gone from barren to barren and older. And uh, he's been at war with powerful kings. He's rescued a family member who was uh, abducted. He received no reward for that. Uh, he may live under the threat of their retribution. Um, and on top of all that, he's just been waiting for God to work, and he hasn't seen it. And in the midst of that fear, real fear, I think, God comes and comforts him. We see that God is good because he comes and comforts Abraham in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Fear not, Abram. He says that because Abram's fearful. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm, uh, I'm your shield. I'll protect you. I'm your reward. It'll be very great. God cares. He cares, and he offers himself to Abram. And you can imagine uh, how hard it is for Abram to believe. It's been a long time, and the promise hasn't been fulfilled. We don't see anything. I don't have a son. And that's pretty much it for Abram. God comes and speaks words of comfort, and Abram is so deep in his darkness, and so deep in his doubt, that he's not comforted. He's not. Look, verse 2, he's not comforted at all. Uh, this is sort of a, what does it matter? Verse 2, uh, Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. I'm an old man. Anything you give me doesn't matter. I'm going to enjoy it for like a day. I'm going to die any minute now. Who's going to enjoy it? I have no family. I have no sons. I've got all these people in my house. They're my servants. But that's not who I want to give it to. I want the promise that you made. A family. Sons. Children. The great nation. What are you going to give me, God? What does it matter? Uh, Abraham is deep in the darkness and in the doubt. And so God reassures him. And he reassures him with this grand vision. This is really interesting to me. Uh, In the midst of his deep doubt, God brings him outside and says, look up at the stars. And uh, you can't do that here, by the way. (laughs) Let's go outside and look at the stars. Cathedral lights? No. Uh, Smog? Helicopter lights. Um, But you get out of the city. Maybe you have to go back to your childhood. Some of you from the middle part of the state. Uh, you can do this much more easily than you Philly or outside of Philly folks. Um, but for me, I go back to my childhood, grew up in rural Virginia, and that was just enamored with the nighttime sky. I'd just go out into my backyard. There was no lights from the town because there was almost nothing in my town. And you had this great canopy of light, like a vast piece of black construction paper with a thousand pinholes in it is what it looked like. And that's what it would have been like for Abraham. You know, he's out in the middle of nowhere. There's no city lights obscuring this wonderful view of the sky. He sees thousands and thousands, and God says, count them. Get to work. Let me know when you're done. Uh, count them. 
That's what your offspring is going to be like. It's a really interesting way to reassure someone. Really? It's not exactly proof. It's just sort of a reiteration. Uh, I'm going to make you a great nation and give you tons of offspring. You want proof? Yes. Well, it's going to be like this. Uh, that's too good to believe. But somehow, it's persuasive. God basically doubles down and says, this is what it's going to be like. Let me show you afresh what your offspring is going to be. I'm going to give you a family, a nation like this. And uh, even though it might be too good for someone cynical, perhaps like me, to believe, uh, Abraham does. Verse 6, he does. He believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So in his goodness, we see God offering comfort and reassurance. And now in verse 6, we see a goodness that's extravagant, almost unbelievable. Uh, if, If you thought... A star full of skies is too good to be true, and you're cynical. What happens next, I think, is even more unbelievable. God grants Abraham righteousness. Everything so far, all these promises are gracious. Abraham doesn't deserve any of them. He's a wandering nomad. He's an old man. He's not necessarily a great dude. He didn't deserve this. God's gracious and wants to save the world, so he chose this guy as a means and an instrument toward that end. And... uh, Again, if you think a thousand stars is a bit much, this is a grand embarrassment. What's going on here is God is giving Abraham God's own righteousness. He's counting Abraham righteous. Now, uh, that's not a word we use very much, righteous. Uh, But it means, basically, innocence from sin and God's perfect moral character. Um, And this is an illustration I've used a bazillion times. Uh, some of you are laughing because you don't know what it is. In some ways, the best way we can think of it in our culture is credit. It's credit. Um, so, I have very good credit. I have excellent credit. I don't make much money, but I have excellent credit. You should be jealous. And um, so, uh, I get all these extravagant, wonderful credit card offers. Now, I don't think they know how much I make, so I have to tear them up and throw it away. I'm not paying that every year for a credit card. Uh, but there's one card that I might qualify for credit-wise, but not income-wise. It's called the Amex Black. And now there's a bunch of copycats. They're all making their own black cards. The Amex Black card is a titanium card. Has anyone seen the Amex Black card before? No. So it's a titanium card. It has no credit limit. No one knows how much the yearly annual fee is, but it's rumored to be upwards of $10,000 or more just to use the card every year. The average expense on the card needs to be about a quarter of a million dollars a year to keep using the card. You have to use a quarter of a million dollars worth of credit every year on the card to keep it. Uh, and, and it's one of these deals where if you have one, it's just instant cachet. You know, you pull out the Amex card, and everyone stops serving all the other tables, and they come to help you and give you whatever you want. Uh, so I will never qualify for the Amex Black card, ever, ever. If I robbed five or six banks, maybe. I would have enough money. But I just never meet. I don't have enough credit to use the card, to get the card, to earn the card. But I could use the card. I could use the card. Someone could let me borrow the card. You've done this yourselves. You've borrowed your parents' credit cards. Some of you have borrowed my Starbucks uh, coffee card, or even my credit card sometimes, to get coffee. And when you buy that coffee... They see 
Not you, but my credit. And that's what it would be with an Amex. My Amex Black. Their Amex Black. When I bought my tank and they swipe the card, they'd be, oh, Mr. Carter, I see you bought yourself a tank today. That's wonderful. Yeah, it is wonderful. And I'd drive my tank away as Mr. Carter. Um, because I got his credit. This is like that. This is like that. Abraham does not deserve it. He does not have this kind of credit or cachet. He's a sinner, like the rest of us. But God has decided to give Abraham all his righteousness as a gift for free. And Abraham gets it by simply believing God, by trusting in Him. And that's called being credited as righteousness. But the New Testament has a different word for it, justification. Maybe unfamiliar with the word. We talk about it here a lot. This is what God does. He declares His children that believe in Him to be just, righteous, because they trust in Him. This is how God makes His people right. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your abstaining from certain things or doing certain things. It comes from trusting in God, from trusting in Jesus. And this is an embarrassment of riches. Basically, God is going to treat Abraham as though Abraham were God's own son. Perfect in every way, from now on. And uh, it's pretty amazing what happens here. And uh, it's an embarrassment of riches. It's a wonderful display of God's goodness. Now, I want to make this apply to you in some way. Uh, And it's pretty simple. Uh, What Abraham has been doing has been looking at his circumstances. Old, barren, nomad. Haven't got any things that need to be. He's looked at his circumstances and reasoned back from them to God's care. Things aren't going the way they were supposed to. I've not received God's promises. Maybe God's angry at me. Maybe, not, maybe God's not good. Maybe God's not faithful. And we do this all the time. We really do. We do this all the time. We use our circumstances as a barometer of God's care. Things aren't going well. I'm filling my exams. God won't give me the boyfriend I want. Or I, this is not working. I can't get a job. And we reason... I must have done something wrong. God must be angry at me. God must not love me. God must not be real. God must not be good. And that's completely wrong. Your circumstances are not a barometer of God's care. Or His character. They're not. Your reaction, though, to your circumstances is a barometer of what you think about God. How you react to your circumstances tells you what you think about God. Things are terrible. God must not love me. No, it doesn't mean He doesn't love you. It means you think He doesn't love you. You think God's capricious and punishing you. In other words, we often base our view of God on our circumstances instead of on His character. How He's revealed Himself to be. And He's revealed Himself to be good. To be good, gracious, kind, comforting, reassuring. And He gives away righteousness to those who trust in Him. Not just good, but faithful. This point will go much more quickly. He's faithful. That is, he not only makes great promises and gives away great gifts, but he keeps his promises, even if they're very costly. So we see, first of all, part of being faithful is remembering your promise. And that's the problem for any dad. We make promises all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do it. Leave me alone. And then you forget. You get distracted. Other things are going on. I really do intend to do that, son. It didn't, doesn't take much effort. I just forgot. God remembers his promises. See it in verse 7. He said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. He's sort of stating everything he promised before. I'm God. You're Abram. Remember, I bought you out to give you this land. That's what happened. 
I remember. I'm going to keep the promise. I didn't forget. I didn't forget Abraham. He hasn't forgotten the promise. He hasn't forgotten the terms. He he hasn't forgotten his plan. And he hasn't forgotten his man, Abram. Uh, But then, this is really interesting, what happens later. You read through, some of you may have like phased out. Maybe I think I even saw some of you phase out when I was reading this. I was reading 12 through 16. There's this really strange interlude. We go from all this hacking apart of animals, that I'll get to in a moment, to this like strange period where your descendants will be slaves in Egypt, whatever, and you're like, what in the world? It's craziness. Um, and this, this is important. This is really important. We see that God is faithful here because he tells the truth. He tells the truth. Faithful people tell the truth. They're people of integrity. And God is faithful in this way here. He's telling Abraham exactly what's going to happen. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you, Abraham. I'm not selling you a false bill of goods. I'm not making things up to be better than they really are. This is the plan, and the plan is great to bless the world. And I'm making this grand promise to forgive you and give you my righteousness and treat you as my son. But you need to know the truth. The truth is this. You will be a great nation. But before that, your people are going to serve in in, uh, slavery for 400 years in some other land before they come to this land. You just need to know that. And that's really actually important. I think you know this in your own life. You should, as a son of a mature person, that uh, you have at least some friends that will tell you the truth about yourself. That's a good and faithful friend, someone that will tell you the truth. So uh, the reason I'm recycling all my illustrations is because I had a strange afternoon. Uh, I got a text from my wife that my son had swallowed a very sharp piece of metal. Uh, Little boys, never strange children. So uh, we have, some of you know that we're awesome parents, and we have a trampoline inside of our house, and uh, that makes us awesome parents. And occasionally the trampoline, the springs break. When the springs break, they're supposed to immediately come and tell us. They didn't do that. Instead, my son took a broken piece of the spring, which is pretty thick and pretty sharp, and put it in his mouth. Dumb. Little boys are dumb. All of you would have done it, boys. And, uh, and then all of you girls would have done the same thing. As a little sister, you would have gone and tackled him from behind. Jostled him, and he swallowed it. So I had to take him to the ER. Uh, my son although very sweet, is definitely afraid of doctors, ERs, and surgery. Which for him is, like, when you're seven or six, surgery is sort of like going to the moon. You just have no, no way of thinking about it. It's just the scariest thing ever. And so part of my job as a dad is to do two things. To comfort him and reassure him, like God did in his goodness to Abraham. And at the same time, tell him the truth. To tell him the truth. Caleb, this is a big piece of metal and it's sharp. I don't know what they're going to do. But they may have to take it out. He's smart enough when he's six to know what that means. Surgery! They're going to cut me! I'm going to die! Uh, they may cut you. I doubt it very seriously. They're probably going to go in and get it and bring it out with a magnet or something. Uh, no! They're going to blow my guts out! <laughs> something. So, the imagination of a six-year-old. Uh, but I had to tell them what might have happened. Because it's part of what it means to be a faithful truthful, loving dad. It, wouldn't have been, it would have been unloving for me not to tell him the truth about what is about to happen. Uh, God was very kind to us. And uh, we think it's actually going to go the normal route. I'll let you figure out what that is. Um, but God is doing this here. He's showing his faithfulness about Abraham by, sh- by telling him the truth. He tells him the truth. And, uh, but it's in the last thing that happens, and perhaps the strangest thing in this story, that we really see God's faithfulness. The most, 
the most clearly, the most powerfully. So uh, you look at this text, and there's some weird stuff going on here. Uh, verse 9, uh, verse 8, Abraham says, Lord God, how am I going to know? How do I know that what you say is true? How do I know I'm going to possess it? You tell me that, but I, how do I know? And what God does is undertakes this exercise. Uh, it looks like butchery, but it's more than that. What God's doing here is making a covenant. And the word covenant actually shows up later in the text, uh, down in verse 18. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham. We don't use this word hardly at all. It's very important in the Bible. It shows up like 235 times in the Old Testament and about 35 times in the New Testament. And a covenant is a solemn agreement. It's a serious commitment. And uh, in this case, it's one that God makes. The, the covenant, sort of summed up in uh, verse 18, is this. To your offspring, I'll give this land. That's the covenant. God's promising. Here's the plan. Here's the covenant. I, God, will give you, Abram, offspring and land. And part of chapter 12, I'll make you a great blessing to the world. Okay, that's the terms of the covenant. Well, we recently bought a house. No, not true. We recently tried to buy a house. Trying to buy a house might be as close as you get to like a serious covenant. Like you literally almost, well, not literally, you almost sign your life on the line. Okay, uh, They go into your finances. They pick everything apart. You put down a huge down deposit. It's, it's not quite like signing it in blood, but in our case, the down deposit was $10,000. If you break the covenant, you break the covenant, you lose that money. To lose $10,000 is a lot of money for us, even though I like to have Amex Black Card. It's a lot of money to lose. Uh, what's going on here is God is saying, uh, this is the covenant, I promise to do this. And... Uh, when he walks, what happens here is he splits these animals open, lays them out on the ground. And in verse 17, this is really weird, but this is what's going on. When the sun goes down, a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch passed between the pieces. What's going on there? This is like a strange power tunnel of death. Y'all know what power tunnels are? Cheerleaders and band members will line up on the tunnel and the football players will come through and run. It's the power tunnel. You're excited. You come through the tunnel of people. Everyone's cheering. This is like the power tunnel of death. Dead animals everywhere. And what you do when you walk between those dead pieces is you're basically saying to the other person, may it be to me like this if I break the covenant. If I break our agreement, our covenant, if I don't keep my promise, may this right here happen to me. Covenants were signed in blood as a treaty in blood, sort of. If I, don't keep my Abra- if I don't keep my promise with you, Abraham, may this happen to me. It's God that walks between the pieces. God walks between the pieces here, and it's a self-maledictory oath. That's the funny word for it, but it's what he's saying. May this happen to me if I don't keep my promise to you. That is a costly promise, friends. That's how far God is willing to go in his faithfulness. To make that kind of promise and oath. And uh, I think we see it really clearly what that would look like in the flesh to Ernest Shackleton. So uh, let's go back to our freezing cold island. On uh, August 30th, 1916, the Yelcho, Yelcho uh, a dinged up Chilean tugboat, approached Elephant Isle. It's, it's been quite a while. And as it approached this island, as the ice was closing in, it was a race against time. 
uh, not knowing if anybody would have survived at all. They could have all frozen to death and starved to death. As they approach the aisle, they find 22 men sitting on the beach, packed and waiting. Every single one of them still alive. Amazingly, miraculously, still alive. Sub-zero temperatures, almost no food is almost impossible. Almost every one of them lived, and they were waiting. They came down to the beach every day and waited for the return. It's amazing. And that's not the most amazing part of the story. The most amazing part of the story is what Ernest Shackleton had to do to make this rescue possible. An open water boat ride in freezing Antarctica in the winter with storms. An open boat. Think canoe. Think big canoe. In the open ocean and freezing cold elements. They had to find an island where people lived. Almost impossible. They arrived on the wrong side of the island and had to hike over a glacier that no one had ever hiked before. The next person to do it in 1955 said about the trip, which was so dangerous he almost died, I don't know how those men did it except that they had to. Amazing. Almost impossible. And we look at his effort and we say, man, what a, what, what a promise to make, what a promise to keep. Abraham asks the question, how am I to know you're going to keep your promise? And God says, look at the stars. Watch me walk through this oath and take this oath on myself. And we ask, God, how, how can I know? How can I know I can trust you? How can I know you're going to really declare me righteous and treat me that way like your beloved son or daughter? And he says, look at the cross. Look at the cross where my son went. I make a covenant with you guys, we break it. We break the covenant all the time. We're unfaithful. We're sinful. We don't love God like we should. And Jesus, God's own son, willingly is broken for us. Willingly broken for us. Because God in his great goodness and in his great faithfulness will do anything. Even give up his own son. Because he loves us that much and because he's faithful to his promise. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust him. Let's pray together.